All right, we'll turn in your Bible to Mark 3. Mark 3. Last week, we saw Jesus kind of embroiled in controversy over the Sabbath, and this week we have more controversy. This time, um, Jesus is facing the accusation that his miracles that he's been doing are being done by the power of Satan. And so we're going to begin in verse 7, and we'll go through the end of the chapter. Uh, let me just give you a heads up. This week is going to be a little bit different than the way we've been doing this. In order to understand what's going on kind of behind the text, we need to go on a rabbit trail this morning. And um, it's quite a rabbit trail. It's on purpose, though. This rabbit trail is going to be most of the message. And if you are drawn to the things in Scripture that are a bit weird, supernatural, um, we're, we're going to touch on some of those things this morning. But I think that doing this is actually going to set us out, up to understand not only what's happening in Mark 3, but really throughout the rest of the gospel as well. So the rabbit trail is not aimless wandering. It's actually establishing a very important point for us. But let's go ahead and read. Beginning in verse 7, I'm going to read all the way to the end of the chapter. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him, called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him, and he appointed twelve whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the zealot and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He's out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He's possessed by Beelzebul. And by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself... That kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside they sent to him and called him, and a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? 
And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Well, let me just kind of give you some comments on that whole thing to help us understand the basics of what's going on before we dig into one part in detail. If you look at verses 7 through 12 there, we have Jesus withdrawing to the sea. A couple of things to note. First of all, that word withdrew is the word fled. Like when Joseph and Mary fled to Egypt because they didn't want to get killed, that's what this is. Jesus is fleeing because his life is threatened by the crowds. He's thinking he may get crushed by the crowds, and so he has to come up with an escape plan. And he goes to the sea... And if you remember from the previous chapters, every time we see Jesus by the sea, what happens? He calls disciples. So what should we expect is going to happen next? He calls disciples. It's new creation language. So the demons recognize Jesus. They have no question about who he is, unlike the people who are very confused as this all goes on. Verses 13 to 19 then, we see that Jesus appointed 12 people, 12 men, 12 disciples, and he calls them apostles. Why 12? Well, 12 is the number of the tribes of Israel, and this is a new Israel. So instead of 12 tribes, now we have 12 apostles gathered around Jesus. And his purpose in choosing them is to send them out to do two things, to preach In other words, to continue the message that he's been preaching, the message of the kingdom, and that they would have authority to cast out demons. That's going to be very important in what we talk about today. Now, when you get to verse 20, we have one of these Oreo cookie structures where we have one thing and then something that's different, and then we return back to that first thing again. So verses 20 and 21, we have comments about Jesus' family. And Jesus' family thinks he's out of his mind. And then we have other people that think Jesus is out of his mind, but in a different way. Jesus is accused of casting out demons by the power of Satan. So Beelzebul is just another name for Satan here. And Jesus' first response to this accusation is, that's dumb. He says, just think about the logic of that. It makes no sense for Satan to be destroying his own work. He says, look at what I'm doing. I'm going and casting demons out of people. I'm undoing Satan's work. Why would you think that Satan would be undoing his own work? A kingdom divided against itself can't stand. A house divided against itself can't stand. And Satan isn't going to attack his own work. But then he has this other comment where he says, what is happening? If it's not that I'm doing this in the power of Satan and Satan's destroying his own work, what is happening? He says, because you're right to see that something's happening. Demons are being cast out of people. And he says, what I'm doing is I'm attacking and retaking Satan's territory, Satan's house. And this is where our rabbit trail is going to go this morning, so I'll leave it there for now. But Jesus points out then that blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, and what does that mean? That's attributing to, attributing the works of the Holy Spirit to Satan. In other words, having a complete lack of faith in Jesus. That's unforgivable. And then we return back to comments about Jesus' family again. Jesus' family, his earthly family, remains 
outside. Notice Mark's inside-outside language. Okay? His family's outside. They think he's crazy. And we'll see that Jesus is making a point about who really, truly is part of his family. He's redefining the family of God around himself. Now, the thing that we really need, I think, to understand, to make sense of what happens here and through the rest of the gospel, is this idea of the binding of Satan. The binding of Satan. And I have some questions that in my mind, as I study this, here are the questions that come up, and this is what I'm going to walk through with us this morning. First of all, what does binding the strong man accomplish? What does that accomplish? Secondly, what are the strong man's goods or his house? When Jesus says he's plundering his goods, plundering his house, what are the goods or the house? How did the strong man obtain these goods? In other words, if Satan has something that belongs to him, how did it come to belong to him? And then finally, what does Jesus accomplish regarding the strong man? Here in his ministry, and then later in his death and resurrection, and then in his ascension, and his rule and reign, and even into uh, the future, his future return. What is it that Jesus accomplishes regarding the strong man? So those are the questions that I want to walk through this morning. So first of all, what does binding the strong man accomplish? And by the way, I am going to take you on um, a journey all over scripture today, and we're going to see all kinds of different verses, so don't try to copy down the whole verse. If you're trying to like take notes to be able to run back through it, just jot down the reference. And if I can help you with notes later, I can do that. Okay, what does binding the strong man accomplish? Jesus talks about plundering his house and his goods. If you look there in Mark chapter 3, verse 27, no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. You could also read this account in the Gospel of Matthew or in Luke to get some different details on it, but they all tell this story. Now the language here, unless he first binds the strong man, should probably take your mind to another section of scripture. Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 3. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut and sealed it over him, why? What did that accomplish? So that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. So when Satan is bound, what that accomplishes is he can no longer deceive the nations. Now, if you remember when we walked through this, when we did the book of Revelation, here in this passage, Jesus is the angel who comes down. And the thousand years is the kingdom of God, or the reign of Christ. It began in Jesus' ministry. It fully arrived after his death and resurrection and ascension to the throne, where he's currently ruling and reigning, Scripture teaches us. And his kingdom is now growing. It's spreading in this age until it covers the earth. And the result of Satan being bound is not that Satan is dead. It's not that Satan can't do anything. It's very specific. It's like being on a leash. You can only go so far. Or on a chain. This is as far as you can reach. 
And what Satan can't do when he's bound is deceive the nations any longer. Now, what does that mean? Well, first of all, up until the point this happened, Satan could deceive the nations. So we need to think about that. What does that mean? We're going to talk more about that in a minute. But notice that a change happened in the ministry of Jesus regarding how the nations are able to perceive truth. Formerly, they were able to be deceived. They didn't perceive the truth. But now, in the ministry of Jesus, something changes that the nations can now understand the truth. They can see it. They're no longer deceived by Satan. Next question, what are the strong man's goods or his house? Well, from what we just read, it seems that the nations are the strong man's goods or his house. His territory is where the nations are. <clears throat> and this lines up really well with what we see in the temptation of Jesus. Now, we saw the temptation of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark, but we didn't get a lot of details. If we go over to the way Luke tells the story, here's what we read. The devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you, I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. So Satan says that the kingdoms of the world have been delivered to him. They are under the authority or under the sway of Satan. When did that happen? We'll answer that in a minute. But notice, too, what Satan is offering is the kingdoms of the world, the nations. The nations, the kingdoms of the world, is part of what has been promised to Jesus. Remember Psalm 2. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. We can also see it in the vision of Daniel 7. Behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. That one like a son of man is Jesus, okay? And to him, to Jesus, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Now in Daniel, that prophecy is looking forward to a point in time where that's going to happen. And, and by the way, the, the point in time is after the four kingdoms of the earth that are prophesied, so remember, you have the Babylonian kingdom, then the Medo-Persians, and then the Greeks, and then the Romans. And when does Jesus arrive? During that Roman Empire, his kingdom comes after those four, okay, just like Daniel's prophecy foretold. But think now about what we just read from Luke, the temptation of Jesus. Does Jesus give in to that temptation? Does he accept Satan's offer? He doesn't even though what Satan was offering was something that was promised to him. Why doesn't Jesus take it? Because Jesus doesn't want it from Satan's offer. He's going to take it from him. 
He's going to win it. Satan wants Jesus to bypass the cross and to take the kingdoms in such a way that Satan would then have a claim on Jesus. Jesus would have to worship him. Jesus won't take the kingdoms that way. He's going to take the kingdoms the right way. Now, we kind of keep working our way back. How did the strong man, Satan, obtain these goods? How did Satan get the kingdoms of the world? How did he get the nations? And for this, this is where we really need to dig into lots of Old Testament passages, and I'm going to try to move quick. So just, just kind of follow the train of thought here. If we go back into our Old Testament chronology, if you think of what happens in Genesis chapter 6, the beginning of it, we've got that really strange passage where the sons of God intermarry with the daughters of men. The sons of God are some kind of spirit being who take on human form. And the result of this is the Nephilim, the giants. Okay, why do we have so many stories about giants? Why does pretty much every nation on earth have giant myths in their past? Because they really existed. The Bible teaches us that giants really existed and this is why they existed. Because the sons of God who had their own place of authority left that place and came and intermarried with the daughters of men and it results in the giants. I told you it was going to get weird. This is what the Bible teaches us, okay? So here's what we read in Genesis 6, 1-4. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. And then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Now, some people say, well, those are just uh, the people who follow, the, it's the line of Cain. They, they weren't godly. But first of all, that makes it kind of an odd way of saying this. And the two main arguments that I'll just give you this morning why that isn't the case. Number one, why would that result in giants? That makes no sense. Okay, so we have something odd going on that results in giants. And then we have the comments that we get in Jude, verses 6 and 7. He speaks of the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling. He's talking about these sons of God from Genesis 6. So they had a proper place of authority, but they left it. And he says, just as... So now we're getting a comparison. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire. Now, in Sodom and Gomorrah, the unnatural desire is a different kind of unnatural desire. It's homosexual desire. But the analogy that is being made here is to say that someone is leaving the proper sphere that they belong to and following unnatural desires that are characterized as sexual immorality that have devastating results. And so Jude is here talking about those angels, those sons of God from Genesis 6, who had a proper sphere of authority, but they left it to come here and to intermarry with the daughters of men, and it results in the giants. Okay, now, 
think through what happens in those chapters of Genesis. Okay, so we have the sons of God and the daughters of men here at the beginning of Genesis 6. Then the rest of Genesis 6, down through chapter 9, we have Noah and the flood. Okay, God is going to wipe out what's happening on the earth because of its wickedness, and he's going to start over. Then in Genesis 10, we have the table of nations. And there are 70 nations that come from Noah's family after the flood. Okay, and this explains all of the peoples on the earth. Then in Genesis 11, we have the Tower of Babel, where the people's languages are confused and the nations are dispersed. So now we have, you know, the, the 70 nations all go to their various places on the earth. And then in chapter 12, God narrows down to one man and he says, I'm going to work with this guy, Abram. And from you is going to come the nation that I'm going to work with, the nation of Israel. Okay, so that's the, that's the general flow of what's happening there in Genesis. Now, when God dispersed the nations at Babel, he then, at some point, gave the nations over to the sons of God. These are the sons of God who followed Satan. Listen to what is said in Deuteronomy 32. It speaks of when the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples. And how did God do that? How did he divide them up and fix their borders? According to the number of the sons of God. Okay, so here's God dividing up the peoples according to the number of the sons of God and handing these nations over to them. And that is contrasted with what he does with Israel. Okay, so let me read it again and then add the next verse. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. God says, I'm dividing up all the nations on earth and I'm turning the nations over to the sons of God, but I'm keeping this one. Israel. I'm going to work with this nation. Okay? You can see something similar in Deuteronomy 4, 19 and 20. And beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the host of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them, things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his own inheritance as you are this day. So here we see that God turns over to the nations things like worshiping the sun, moon, and stars, but he says for his people, don't do that. Now God's not saying that those other nations should do that, but that those nations have been given over to that as they've been given over to these sons of God. So the call of Abram in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, reads like this. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. 
and I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God divides up the nations. He hands them over to these sons of God. But in the very choosing of Abram, we have the seed of this promise that one day God is going to bless all of those nations through the one nation that he's working with. Psalm 147, verses 19 and 20. He declares his word to Jacob, or Israel, his statutes and rules to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know his rules. There's a distinction between how God deals with Israel and how he deals with the nations. Exodus 19. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Here you see that God actually retains, of course, ownership over all of it. Even though he's handed over these nations to the sons of God, ultimately God still is the one who's in charge. He says that there, the whole earth is mine. But he makes the distinction inside of that, of among all peoples, that Israel will be his treasured possession, his special people. Deuteronomy 7, verse 6. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Deuteronomy 14, 2. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Deuteronomy 26. You have declared today that the Lord is your God and that you will walk in his ways and keep his statutes and his commandments and his rules and will obey his voice. And the Lord has declared today that you are a people for his treasured possession as he has promised you and that you are to keep all his commandments and that he will set you in praise and in fame and in honor high above all nations that he has made. And that you shall be a people holy to the Lord your God as he promised. And the whole Old Testament reads this way. Even when we get to the New Testament and Paul is reasoning in the book of Romans, he says, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. They had a special privileged position. Now, if that's all true, what is the situation when Jesus arrives on the scene? To answer that, I want to go to an odd place. Go to Psalm 82. Turn in your Bible there with me. Most of these verses I'm putting up on the screen just because it's uh, convenient to share this number of verses with you that way. But I want you to see this. Psalm 82. What is the situation when Jesus arrives on the scene? Let's look at the little background story that we get here in Psalm 82. I'll just read it bit by bit and comment on it as we go. Psalm 82, starting in verse 1. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. Well, that's strange. <laughs> and it's even more strange when you read it in the original, because the word God at the beginning, 
Elohim is the same word as later in the midst of the gods. In the first case, it's plural because it's a plural of majesty. And we have the Trinity, the three persons of the Trinity. Elohim, the true God. But later, it's talking about the gods. And it's clearly not talking about the God of Israel at this point, as we see as we go on. But notice here, we have the divine council. Now, if you read ancient myth, you see all kinds of things like this. You see, you know, the, the council of the gods up on, you know, Mount Olympus or whatever the case may be. Here we have the divine council. It's God in his throne room and other spiritual heavenly beings who are a part of this throne room scene, who are a part of this council. You think of the beginning of Job. Satan comes before God. And he asks permission and that you have the divine counsel there and God gives his permission to Job to go do what he's going to do. God is clearly above all other gods. All these other gods are created beings, but there are these other beings, part of this divine counsel. Okay, so now look at verse two down through verse five. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. Here God is almost reprimanding the other gods for their lack of justice in overseeing the nations. Now, you could say that it's the rulers of the nations themselves, the human rulers, and that would be true, but there's this kind of inseparable link between the gods who are overseeing the nations and the human rulers who are actually exercising the judgment there. Verse 6, I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. So here we have these beings who are referred to as gods and they're not men because they're compared to men. Like men, you will die. You're not men, but like men, you will die. They're called gods and they're called sons of the most high. These are the sons of God. Okay. Part of the divine council. And so we see the failure of the sons of God there in verses two to five, and we see the judgment that's coming on them in verses six and seven. And then we finish it with verse eight, arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit the nations. The true God will inherit the nations. These other gods are a failure and they will be judged. And the one true God will inherit the nations, all of them. He will rule over all the nations. That's what we're seeing there in Psalm 82. Now, the nations are under the dominion of Satan or the sons of God, according to what we've seen here. So let me just give you some other verses leading up to the ministry of Jesus. This one's an interesting one. Daniel chapter 10, verses 13 and 14. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. Now, who's speaking here? This is the angel or the messenger that comes to Daniel. He says, the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. But Michael, 
One of the chief princes came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia, and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days. But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia, and when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side ex against these except Michael, your prince. Here you have this little window into the, the spiritual warfare that's going on in the world. As this messenger comes to Daniel, he says, look, I would have been here sooner, but I spent 21 days fighting against this angel, this, this God who is the prince of the kingdom of Persia. And it was, a, it was a, like we were deadlocked until Michael came along to help me, and then I was freed up to come and give this message to you. Like I said, some weird stuff, I know, but this is the Bible. So the thing I want you to see here is that this spirit being who was opposing the angel who comes to Daniel is described as the prince of the kingdom of Persia. In other words, He's a god over one of the nations. I think that's what we're seeing there. We're seeing an example of one of these sons of God who oversees one of the nations that is in opposition to God's people. Let me keep going. When you get to the things that Jesus is saying here in the New Testament, hopefully they start to take on maybe a little different character. John 12, 31 now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Remember what we saw in Psalm 82, the failure of these sons of God and the fact that they will be judged. Jesus says, now is the judgment of this world. John 14, I will no longer talk much with you for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the father. Why does Satan, the ruler of this world, have no claim on Jesus? Because Jesus didn't let him at the temptation. Satan made the offer. Jesus turned it down. And so Satan has no claim on Jesus. He's not beholden to Satan. He's taking the kingdoms of this world, but he's taking it by force, in his own way, not by gift of Satan. John 16, when the helper, the Holy Spirit comes, the ruler of this world is judged. Paul, as he writes to the Corinthians, explaining the practices of the pagans, he says, what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. He's talking about a spiritual reality there. And then listen to the explanation that comes kind of two chapters before this. When we piece this together, back in 1 Corinthians 8, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. Those are things that the Old Testament teaches. Idols are not to be feared. They have no real existence. There's only one true God. But then listen to what Paul says. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. 
So he says, the pagans, when they sacrifice, they're sacrificing to demons. And there is a spiritual reality. And yes, there are other gods, but they are not to be worshipped. They're not to be feared. We know that there's one true God who's actually over all of those gods. Acts 26, Paul explains that he was commissioned by God to open their eyes. Why? So that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. That they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Paul sees his work of evangelism, proclaiming the kingdom, as pulling people out of Satan's kingdom and into God's kingdom. Remember the promise that we saw in Genesis 12. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Or Psalm 2, I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. So now let's ask the question, what does Jesus accomplish regarding the strong man when Jesus comes? Remember that there's conflict going on between Jesus and Satan, between the spiritual forces of darkness and the, the, the power of Jesus. And it goes all the way back to the beginning. Genesis 3, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And we're even told by John that the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. That's why Jesus came. So how is Jesus doing this in his earthly ministry? Well, first of all, we saw that Jesus withstood Satan's temptation. And then as you go on, like even in the passage we read today in Mark 3, the demons know who Jesus is. And they know that he came to destroy them. For example, Luke 4, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But as Jesus ministers, what he's doing is he's freeing people from the power of Satan and demons. We saw it already in Mark 1. Remember what happened when Jesus went into the tabernacle. He casts out an unclean spirit out of the man. In a couple chapters, when we get to Mark 5, we're going to see Jesus casting a demon out of the demon-possessed man who lives among the tombs in the country of the Gerasenes. And this happens over and over. Jesus plunders the house and goods of the strong man, according to our passage today in Mark 3. Now I want you to see something that only Luke tells us. It's not in Mark, but I think it's helpful for us to understand. And this is Luke chapter 10. Here's what verse 1 says. After this, the Lord appointed 72 or 70 others and sent them on ahead of him two by two into every town and place where he himself was about to go. Now, a word of explanation, your translation may say 72, it may say 70. The manuscripts differ on this. I think 70 is a better reading, partly because it picks up all these themes from the Old Testament and carries them forward. I think it's, it should be 70. But what we have here is you have Jesus' 12, and then he chooses 70 beyond that, and he sends them out. I think those 70 that he sends out represent the nations. Remember the table of nations in Genesis 10. How many nations are there? 70 nations. 
The gospel of the kingdom is now going to the rest of the nations. So what happens when these 70 go out? Jesus says to them, when you come to a town, heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they don't receive, you go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. So twice there, we're told, the kingdom of God has come near to these people. Unlike the era when the sons of God ruled the nations and they were deceived. Now, as that passage in Luke 10 continues, here's what we find. The 72, or the 70, returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Now, remember what we saw in Mark 3, 14 and 15. Jesus appoints the 12 to preach and have authority to cast out demons. Now the 70 do the same. Mark wants us to see that a vital part of Jesus' ministry is reclaiming territory from Satan. And Luke is doing the same thing as he tells us about the 70. Now, these disciples, when they come back, the first thing that they note is that the demons are subject to them. Jesus is plundering their house, the demon's house. Jesus says he saw Satan fall from heaven, losing his place of authority and dominion. And Jesus tells these disciples to rejoice, not just that the spirits are subject to them, but that their names are written in heaven, because their names being written in heaven means... They belong to the kingdom of God. So Jesus in his ministry is binding the strong man. That's what he's accomplishing. How about in his death and resurrection? Hebrews 2. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Or Colossians 1, he's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So even in his death and resurrection, Jesus is plundering Satan. How about in his ascension and his rule and reign? Well, when Jesus ascended, he pours out the spirit at Pentecost and what happens at Pentecost is the reversal of what happened at Babel. At Babel, because of the confusion of tongues that God sent, God divided or distributed the nations and gave them to the sons of God. Now at Pentecost, that division is being undone. So, Look at the words that are used here. We saw Deuteronomy 32 earlier, when the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the numbers of the sons of God. When we get to Pentecost, Acts 2, divided tongues 
as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they're going to go then, these, the, the tongues of fire that have been divided amongst these people, they're now going to go to the nations with the message of the gospel. You can see it as well when you think about what we see in Genesis 11, the story of, of the Tower of Babel here. The Lord said, behold, they are one people. They all have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. Nothing they propose to do will now be impossible for them. This is uh, divine sarcasm here. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So, the, so they're all understanding each other until God intervenes and now they can't understand each other anymore. Well, back in Acts 2, just a couple of verses after what we just read, now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, every nation under heaven, and at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered, confused, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. So this is like, we get the, the word confusion to tie us back to Babel, but it's actually unconfusion because now they're actually all understanding in their own languages. Where Babel, it was all confused. Now they understand and they can take the message of the gospel to these nations. <clears throat> so at Babel, the languages were confused and the nations were dispersed, the nations being given to the sons of God and therefore deceived by Satan. Now at Pentecost, the languages are united, the nations are brought together all under the lordship of Christ and therefore they're enabled to see the truth of the gospel. As we continue to think about Christ's rule and reign, Think of the bookends of the, of the book of Romans. We start here at the beginning of Romans 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, the good news of the kingdom, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship. Now listen, to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Paul is a minister of the gospel, seeking the obedience of faith, all the nations. And now we get those two things in reverse at the end of the book of Romans. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel, the good news of the kingdom, and the preaching of Jesus Christ, According to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed through the prophetic writings, has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Colossians 1, the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing. And why is all of that happening? It's exactly what God foretold would happen. Habakkuk 2, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. What will Jesus do finally one day to Satan? Well, we go back 
to where we began in Revelation 20 about Satan being bound. And now we read in verse 10, And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire, sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So Mark 3, Jesus says, first the strong man must be bound, and then his house and his goods can be plundered. Jesus takes the accusation that is made against him, that he's acting in Satan's power, as an opportunity to state the reality that he is actually taking Satan's territory. He's reclaiming what Satan has. And the scribes are seen to be missing entirely what God is doing in the ministry of Jesus. They're attributing the work of the Holy Spirit to Satan. And to persist in that course can't be forgiven. They're saying that Jesus' power comes from an unclean spirit. Well, rejecting Jesus results in condemnation. But the main point here, the way that Mark tells this story, has to do with Jesus' family that Jesus is redefining family, the family of God, around himself. Remember the Oreo cookie structure. We have comments about Jesus' family sandwiching this whole section talking about Satan being bound. So what does Jesus say about family? Well, Jesus' family, his earthly family, at this point in his ministry is rejecting the truth. They are denying the truth of what Jesus is saying. And instead, they're saying that he's out of his mind. In other words, they are deceived like the nations that are under the sway of Satan. Therefore, they are on the outside. They're not truly part of Jesus' family, not the way that Jesus is defining his family. Jesus defines his family as those who do the will of God. And Jesus' earthly family remains outside of that group for now. Instead, Jesus is encircled. We see that twice, verse 32 and verse 34. He's encircled by those who do the will of God and therefore are his family. Do you see how it's all related? Up till this point in history, who has been the family of God? The nation of Israel. Who has been his children? Who's been his special treasured possession? Who has he revealed himself to? Israel. But now, in Christ, the kingdom invitation is going out to the nations because Satan has been bound and the nations are no longer deceived. They can now see the truth. They can respond to the gospel invitation. And what has made that possible? The fact that Jesus has bound the strong man so that he can no longer deceive the nations. Now the light of Christ shines into the darkness of the nations. Now people from every tribe and tongue and nation and language will come to the kingdom and join the family of God. So what do we do with this? You and me today. Let me just suggest a couple of things. First of all, remember that Satan is dangerous, but also that he's defeated. He's dangerous, but he's also defeated. First Peter chapter 5, be sober-minded, 
Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in the faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So take him seriously. Be sober-minded. Be vigilant. Resist him. Fight temptation as Jesus did. Jesus used the word of God. We should do the same thing. But at the same time, Satan is defeated and he's bound. The advance of the gospel through the world is a sure thing. Scripture teaches this. And despite our short-term challenges to see this, when we look at our own culture today, it is happening. God's word should give us confidence. Spread the message of the gospel of the kingdom. Think about what Jesus gave as an assignment to his followers as he left. <clears throat> Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, don't miss that. All authority in heaven and on earth. All of the nations. Jesus says, past tense at this point, it has been given to me. Satan offered it to him. Jesus refused, and then he took it. Through his death and resurrection, through his ministry, Jesus took what rightfully belonged to him, his inheritance, the nations. And so now Jesus says to his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore. And make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. So this should give us confidence in the gospel message. And it should help us with our assignment to recognize that the strong man has been bound, that Jesus has been given authority, that the spread of the gospel is a sure thing, and we're simply to walk in the obedience of faith. The other thing that I want to leave with you this morning is this question, are you part of the family? Jesus makes a distinction between those who are inside and those who are outside. And those who are inside are those who have responded in faith to him, those who do the will of God. Have you responded to the gospel message of the kingdom? And if you're wondering, one question to ask yourself is, do I bear the family likeness? Do I bear the family resemblance? If you looked at my life, does it look like I belong to Jesus? Are you part of the family? Let's close in prayer. Lord, we thank you for the message that we have from the Gospel of Mark this morning. And uh, this is one of those things that maybe is, is challenging for us to get our mind around because it's thinking in ways that we don't often think and yet it's something that you teach us in Scripture. And so I pray that you would help us to have our minds be shaped, transformed, conformed to your word. Help us to think the way that you do. Help us to understand the reality of the spiritual battle that is going on. Help us to believe what you have said, that all authority has been given to you. 
and help us to be obedient then in going and making disciples of all nations. We pray this this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.